Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion of our politics and ideas. Today, it's what's on everybody's lips, masks. We'll be talking about that as well as our federal parliament and asking what's happened to it. And then we'll be looking at what we hope to be sweeping reforms of our environmental regulation, which could be one way that we can actually get back to creating jobs in this country instead of destroying them. As always, in our books and culture segment, we'll have our spread of books and movies, including Mr Jones, about a crusading journalist in the 1930s, a uh, McMillions, which is um, a show about people who managed to defraud McDonald's. And you might think that's a good thing, but um, a very entertaining show, apparently. And I'll be talking about a sort of a lockdown creative uh, special out there in, in social media, which is uh, Patrick Stewart doing one of Shakespeare's sonnets every day. Uh, to get through this uh, variety of topics and ideas, I have with me, as always, my co-host, Chris Berg from RMIT University. Good day, Scott. Good to have you, Chris. Uh, still in the bunker. Uh, in a different bunker, I have our Director of Communications, Evan Mulholland. Good day, Scott. Good to have you, Evan. Thanks for joining Looking Forward. Uh, this is, of course, a podcast of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au. We've got some, some great offers going at the moment about how you can join at a discounted rate, and then I'm sure you'll keep renewing for the next 100 years. Um, uh, and you can also find lots of our great content there. But yes, Chris, as I mentioned, um, Victoria, of course, is in lockdown it started a nationwide debate over masks and whether we should wear them and whether we should be required to wear them. That's right, Scott. So for a while, a month or so ago, it did look like we had in Australia escaped becoming a mask-wearing society. That is no longer the case. The Victorian government has now announced that it is mandatory in Melbourne and Mitchell Shire, which is uh, just north of Melbourne, to wear a mask outside your home anytime where you're outside your home. There's a range of exclusions. For instance, in the um, classes that have returned to school, I think it's the year 11s and 12s, um, the teacher doesn't have to wear a mask, but the students do have to wear a mask. Um, there are exclusions for young children. But, but for the most part, we are now in the mandatory mask situation. Lots of other states, jurisdictions, countries around the world have also got similar orders in the United States. These are a huge controversy, which I think we'll talk about. But let's start with the basic question. Um, mandatory masks, not voluntary masks, mandatory masks. Evan, where do you stand? Where does your political philosophy view take you on the question of should masks be mandatory? Yeah, look, um, I, I don't think they should be mandatory. Um, I do think it's pretty common sense that masks would help in stopping the spread of a virus. And this is the kind of thing that should have been a first resort rather than a last resort. And I think this really blows the whole idea that we need to trust the experts to sm smithereens because at the start they were saying they aren't effective in stopping the spread of the virus. Um, and in the space of a few months, we've gone from they aren't effective to now they're now essential and they're now compulsory. So I think when the evidence changes so much, uh, it really uh, puts people off. And I think making it mandatory really just yeah puts people off and annoys people and probably makes people loathe the fact that they do have to wear them in, in the first place rather than coming up with evidence-based policy that could encourage them to do so. I've got some serious problems with this policy, but... There, surely, Evan, there is a prima facie case for making masks mandatory because it's obviously a communicable disease. This is obviously one of the most effective ways to prevent the communication of that disease. It's not like we we choose to receive it or anything like that. So, so I, I find it hard to make a nanny state argument against mask wearing. It does strike me that in the same way that you might argue that we should have you know relatively high vaccination rates and we should use the power of the state to enforce those rates you could make the same argument or about masks right and i think that's a good point um look masks are something i'm not going to die in a ditch over and i also think there's a counter argument to, uh, to it as well um, that if more people are using masks um, it probably means we can open up our economy sooner 
um, which is of course a good thing for lots of families and businesses and alike. So Chris, where do you fall, Scott? Well, um, the libertarian objection, one of the things to it is we would never, uh, no libertarian would object to requiring of masks say on private property. Um, So if in March, Bunnings and Woolworths had have decided that you could not enter a supermarket or a Bunnings store without a mask, that would have been their business. Now, nobody could possibly object to that. But at that time, the WHO was out there saying, oh, yeah, no, 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 it should be reserved for emergency services workers and, 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 um, and, and health staff. And uh, this sort of uh, determination of the nanny state to control the decisions about uh, masks the obstification about the evidence, and, and we, we, we have some belief that this was because they were worried about the supply of masks. Um, so they, this, this attempt to control the messaging over the last six months has been one of the reasons why, in at least in the English-speaking world, I think we've, we've, we've led to this sort of disastrous um, uh, confusion and conflict over it because it wasn't necessarily evidence-based at any point. I mean, in, in the uh, East Asian countries, it was uh, taken for granted. You know, it's a different cultural environment. But it's like in, if you're in Taiwan, it's like you wear a mask and that's fine. And, and whether or not it was compulsory, um, the vast majority of the population would have done so either. Um, but uh, now what I object to is, uh, like Evan, it's like it's not the, the worst thing to be asked to or even told to wear a mask if you're going into a, a shopping centre or a Bunnings or whatever. But the nanny state wants to control it to the extent that they're saying you must put it on as soon as you walk out the door. So we're talking about walking down a footpath. We're talking about being in parks. Now, th- so the, the Lancet study, um, which we might come to, you know, talks about the efficacy of marks. This is, this is about indoor environments, not outdoor environments, but why do they do it? So we had on ABC's Q&A, um, here's just an example, but uh, Jody McVernon from the Doherty Institute, I'm sure she's a very uh, well-meaning epidemiologist, but, you know, when she's asked the question, um, uh, she, she doesn't resort to epidemiology. She says, oh, you know, practically the thing of having to stop and put a mask on before you leave the house is a reminder that it's not necessarily safe out there and the threat is not eliminated. So... She's not saying wear the mask to prevent the virus spreading. She's saying we're passing this law because we want you to be scared and afraid all the time rather than relying on the common sense of people to work out when, when and where a mask might actually be appropriate and when not. It is a really interesting case study in the, politi- oh, so the communication side of the pandemic that has just been a really absolute disaster from day one. Um, and continues to be. So the the um, terrible messaging at the start of the pandemic about whether you need to wear a mask as an individual citizen was entirely driven by the fact that they didn't want us to go off and, and panic buy masks. Um, and you can understand the reasoning there, but what it did is it, it um, made masks into this uh, very, very unclear safety. Um, we were all very unclear about the safety of it. And now it appears that they're doing precisely the same thing by telling us that we have to put on a mask in non-risky situations, situations that they say are completely non-risky, like the moment you walk out the house, outdoors, in any situation where you're not running, for instance, when you're outside. Um, or overly exerting yourself. And that's being done again, not because of the medical evidence, but because of a policy communication or a health communication thing. And I think what this is really, this whole experience of the pandemic has underlined to me how um, it's not that the experts per se are talking about their areas of expertise because epidemiologists haven't have expertise in epidemiology and the transmission of virus between populations and within populations but they are imposing some sort of pop psychology views yes on their recommendations they're imposing some moral views on their recommendations that are quite separate to their areas of direct study that i just don't think holds up and under any circumstances is in their area of of, of um, expert knowledge. Yeah, well, just... I think you're right on that, Chris. Um, I'll, I'll just add, you know, case in point of that, um, uh, Peter Doherty from the Peter Doherty Institute, if you have a look at his Twitter feed, 
half of his tweets are criticizing uh, the economic theories of the IPA and says, well, you know, we shouldn't shouldn't follow the IPA's, you know, trickle down economics and uh, talking about, you know, Liberal Party politicians and things like that. So I'm pretty sure that's also outside of his expertise. <laughs> yeah, right. I do, I do, I, I do want to directly answer the question that I've been trying to push at you guys though on on should they be made mandatory or not. Um, now I don't have a problem with mandatory In, masking. Indoors. Indoors. In, in in specific instances where the science clearly says that it is a necessary thing, because like you, Evan, um, if this is the trade-off for keeping the economy running, I will gladly pay that trade-off. If you recall in Victoria for the last two weeks, we have been terrified about the idea of stage four restrictions. God knows what stage four restrictions would be, but we just know that they would be harsher. If the alternative to masks, mandatory masking in indoor settings is stage four restrictions, I will gladly pay that trade-off. But I am deeply resentful about this um, manipulative psychological approach that says, well, if we're gonna make masks mandatory in one situation, we have to make it mandatory in all situations. So it's easier to communicate the message to you and easier for police to fine you if they see you outside. I just, I just think that is a. There's just no liberty argument for that. There's no externalities argument for that. There's no economic argument for that. It is just manipulation for the sake of manipulation. Oh, that, that, that's right, Chris. Look, one, one last rant about this. One last rant. So, just, just this, this moral framework also that it encourages is. Um, uh, the uh, you know what what Bella Debira calls the curtain twitches, um, the the people who just love being able to get behind uh, the nanny state, you know the the mailed fist of the nanny state in this case, because they'll find you find you if you've walked out of your door without a face mask. Presumably, well, there'll be a policeman outside every door. Um, this, uh, today's age, someone's written and said. To make exceptions for special pleaders such as joggers undermines the intention and makes it harder to enforce the law, says Peter Barry of Marysville. I mean, for God's sake. Um, but, uh, you know, this, is, this confusion has led to what we've seen in, in America uh, where, you know, like everything else, it, it's become politicised. And, yeah, the libertarian side of me, um, you know, loves to see people uh, not wanting to uh, accept a draconian laws um but you know somewhere in there the efficacy has been completely lost yeah and this is this is worth actually talking about it evan i'd be interested in your views on this mm -hmm. because it strikes me that what's happened in the u.s so so um for for listeners who haven't been following it the idea of wearing a masks whether it's mandatory from the government or mandatory from an individual shop seems to have become a really significant culture war in the united states Part of it is tied up with um, some of Donald Trump's, again, some strange messaging from Donald Trump about the virtues of wearing a mask and some messaging from the White House itself that um, the president didn't think masks made uh, Joe Biden look very manly. Now, it appears that the messaging is reversed again because Trump has now been seen wearing a mask. And in fact, I'll read a, a tweet that he put up. Um, uh, the other day, we were united in our effort to defeat the invisible China virus. And many people say that it is patriotic to wear a face mask when you can't socially distance. There is nobody more patriotic than me, your favourite president. So um, some, some really strong pro-mask wearing um, messaging <laughs> there. But what, what strikes me about this is that it appears that, it, or, or maybe it's just, isn't it devastating that we cannot manage these sorts of discussions these sorts of policy responses without filtering it through a culture war lens is isn't that a huge problem evan what, what what's your what's your view on that sort of culture wars aspect of the of the mask question yeah no it's a very interesting point and i think it highlights a lot of difference uh you know a lot, often we say the culture is similar between the us and australia but i think it highlights a big difference on this debate um, there didn't seem to be that big culture war debate, that big sort of left-right debate on masks uh, that was had in the US. Um, it just seems to like it just seems very unfamiliar uh, to me, at least, that uh, people would be debating uh, the use of masks. As I said, it seems pretty common sense uh, that masks would stop uh, the spread of the virus if you especially if you carry the virus yourself, it would stop you from, uh, and you're asymptomatic, for example, it would stop you from spreading it to other people. 
Um, and there is some evidence to suggest that even uh, if you don't have the virus, it could help you from uh, to prevent you from getting it. So, um, it did, yeah, it seems very unfamiliar uh, for me that there would be a culture war going on. Uh, I think it, from here it looks very silly. But isn't it isn't it a isn't it a huge problem, right? And and I worry sometimes that we're starting to have the issue in Australia as well that it, it has become a the only way some people can navigate policy questions, ethical questions, um, uh, just just practical utility questions than through, well, the left want me to do this or the right want me to do this, so I'm against that. And, you know, this is those type of people want me to do this. Those type of people don't. Isn't that a huge political problem that we're walking into, that, that the masks question in the US is really typified? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's a big problem for the US because um, it doesn't really allow for consensus. And I guess you could bring in broader debates about, you know, voluntary voting, pulling aside um, uh, uh, to, to extreme viewpoints. But it, the culture there uh, does not really allow for a lot of consensus in the same way that we might see that here. Um, here you had on a range of policy areas, um, uh, you know, business and unions come together to sort out uh, flexible arrangements for workplace relations. You had all sorts of different sides of the equation coming together for the so-called greater good. Uh, but where in the US uh, on the mass point, um, it, it, they seem to be going to, to polar ends of the spectrum. And I, I don't think I think sometimes in debate, that's a really good thing. Uh, on this case, I don't think so. Closer to home, Evan, one of the uh, arenas that we do look for uh, to manage debate, uh, to hear alternative views, to actually achieve some kind of consensus on some issues, not on others, uh, is Parliament. Uh, but you had a piece in the Sydney Morning Herald this week uh, because Parliament has been punted once again. Tell us about that, please, Evan. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Scott Morrison's decided you know, from the uh, to cancel the next two sitting weeks, which was meant to start from uh, August the 4th. Uh, he says it's based on medical advice. Um, I think it's pretty outrageous. I mean, I mean, Parliament's asking every single business to uh, become COVID-safe businesses, to completely re upend their businesses, rearrange their businesses to become COVID-safe businesses and can't even do it themselves. I think it sends a really bad message uh, to the community uh, who have gone through so much. Um, with, all, with all the billions of dollars coming out of Treasury coffers, with, with all the policies that are going through, um, we've got the most amount of spending on stimulus ever. Surely there's never been a more important time uh, for Parliament to sit. And that's sort of what I've gotten into in, in the piece in the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, even if, you know, uh, uh, Scott Morrison said it's a, a no-brainer uh, that Parliament should be cancelled. Uh, Matthias Cormann said it was not plausible uh, that Parliament should go ahead. Uh, but if you look at the constitutionality, there doesn't seem to be any uh, barrier uh, to Parliament going ahead via Zoom, for example, as they did in the UK. Uh, it talks about, uh, the Constitution talks about voting uh, by telephone or by personal service um, or in such uh, similar ways or, or wording like that, where it could be interpreted that, uh, uh, you know, looking into the future, our constitutional writers would have... Uh, uh, open it up for other technologies like Zoom. So I think it could be done by either legislatively, uh, legislatively or changing the standing orders um, and similar to basically what they did in the UK. Uh, at the height of the pandemic there, when Boris Johnson was even off with COVID, uh, parliamentarians sent in their questions to, to Dominic Raab by Zoom. Uh, I think it's, it's very important for our liberal democracy that our um, that parliamentarians be able to scrutinise uh, other parliamentarians and decision-making decision makers in the process which uh, most Australians are familiar with, which is the national parliament. It is absolutely outrageous, isn't it? Because, uh, as you as you point out, the idea that the entire economy has been sent to work from home um, uh, overnight, 
so it's not like we had months and months and months to prepare and set up zoom accounts and all that sort of thing everybody had to do it overnight i'm not blaming the government for that i completely understand why that happened um but it's just too hard for the parliament to do so four months into this crisis when if they haven't been preparing for the possibility of a second wave if they haven't been preparing for four months to do remote parliament it is absolutely incompetent of the parliament now whether that's incompetent of the um of the parliamentary officers themselves whether the parliament itself is unable to do this whether it's the government that just couldn't be bothered whether it's a bipartisan agreement that they couldn't be bothered parliament is not optional for them this is their one job there there was a line that scott morrison had and i can't remember whether i've got it here but maybe you had it which is he he, he said something like it was um meant you know, to be in their communities important. yeah yeah, it's more important that parliamentarians be in their communities. No, it isn't. <laughs> it is not important that they're in their communities. It is important that they are representing their communities in the parliament, that it is their job to do so. We need them there. And the idea that they can so casually dismiss it is is obscene to me. Yeah, it's I'm... also it's also nonsensical. I don't what is it that they think is going to change late in August? We are going to have a low level no even in the best case scenario we're going to have a low level transmission in victoria for quite some time um they're just going to have to get used to this yeah well that, and i don't even accept the premise that we had to default to some kind of electronic representation um now and and certainly they have the capability we know it because uh we've seen the articles about how the um, uh, the committees of, of government, say the National Security Committee of Cabinet and and uh, this uh, and these various bodies, um, have you know very they don't use Zoom they use uh, very secure um, uh, platforms that have been created uh, for obvious to, to interrupt to interrupt I do want to make a point I've been on one of these um, government uh, webinar systems they are. Awful, absolutely <laughs> awful. I've never had a worse experience yeah. than when I put on these damn things. Yeah, anyway. yeah. I'm not sure. You, I'm not sure you got the A grade treatment. Um, but, but uh, yes, I'm, I'm. I'm not even sure I accept the premise of that. I think um, if that if if you got to get you know the army and uh, an air force involved in getting politicians to Canberra, um, uh, if there's got to be special health measures, I mean the the building itself is bloody enormous. I mean the chamber is a disgrace. Um, uh, the Australian Parliament originally followed the Westminster model and everybody was very crowded. Um, and instead, when they built Parliament House in, in Canberra, they went into this cavernous space <laughs> and, um, and lost the immediacy of parliament, parliamentary debate. Um, but I think it's fair to say that horse has bolted. So this may be my one and only opportunity to um, uh, kvetch about the design um, of uh, a jugular and uh, approved by Malcolm Fraser that uh, walked away from that Westminster tradition. Churchill was right after Jerry had bombed the House of Commons and he said, I want it restored exactly the same way. <laughs> Just he put it back. <laughs> he rejected proposals to create a, a space um, that would have allowed them to actually fit in all of the MPs, which um, to this day they still cannot do in the House of Commons. Um, but here we are in Australia, we have this cavernous space, allows for social distancing, this is my point, <laughs> uh, but we're not going to use it. And it's because there's thousands and thousands of hangers-on in Parliament. I bet you that's yeah. half the bloody problem too. So no, I, I think that's right. And, and But what, whether it's virtual, and I'm so there have been some interesting experiments with virtual, and it is from my observations, and Canada's done it as well, that both the UK and the Canadian Parliament have both done their own versions of Question Time. Um, Prime Minister's questions in the UK and question period, I think, in Canada. Um, uh, and, and they're rubbish experiences, right? But they are at least a simulacrum of mm. um, uh, parliamentary responsibility. It is easy to fill out the spectrum between full traditional parliament and complete remote Zoom parliament as well, as, as you pointed out, Scott. You know, what if only the parliamentarians went? To Canberra, literally just the parliamentarians. The staff can stay at home and Zoom. What if we said no lobbyists in the building? We, we don't need the lobbyists there all the time. You know, we don't need the whole parliament there. We can 
have a small smattering of the parliament there. There's so many things that can be done, which is why it's so obscene that the government's just decided to cancel it. Um, the idea that this is an option, I just find, you know, if parliament doesn't think it's an essential service, then, you know, I, I, I said this on Twitter, I'll say it again. Um, if, if they don't think that they can do this, they should dissolve themselves and we will vote in a parliament that does think it's essential because damn well, I think it's essential. And I think most of our listeners would as well. I think you're absolutely right. And there is an important principle at stake here and that is precedence. Um, uh, in Victoria, Daniel Andrews has basically cancelled parliament indefinitely, um, uh, suspended parliament indefinitely. And then when the parliamentary committees were voting, you know, their version of estimates tried to vote to put on some scrutiny onto uh, the government for its measures and its actions taken, um, they've used their numbers on that committee to block all democratic attempts at scrutiny. So this is a very, very bad path for Scott Morrison to follow. Uh, he doesn't want to follow this path where he can just cancel parliament at a whim. And surely, surely, even if it's just for two weeks, these ones, they can use those two weeks to get their act together and figure out how the bloody well way to, to do parliament virtually. Because, you know, Canada and the UK have been able to do it. Why not Australia? Yeah. And as Chris says, um, uh, you know, and as we've been saying on this show, it is time to start thinking not about eradication, which is um, a fantasy. Um, uh, it's We've got to give up on this idea that we can get back to a world without uh, COVID-19. It is about learning to live as Australians with some level of risk, with some level of infection, um, and uh, right, ac right across the economy. And uh, so this is just perpetuating the idea that you can kick the can down the road already, by the way. So at this time last year, the House of Representatives had sat for 45 days. Um, so far this year, it's sat for 27. So the longer we go, the more that disparity is, is going to grow. And it's, it's, um, it's probably a good thing that they're not passing legislation because most legislation just um, uh, takes away our liberties and increases our taxes. Legislation uh, is a net negative. Yeah, but, negative. but the elements of Parliament that involve scrutiny should be wholeheartedly endorsed. And, yeah, uh, because Parliament, Parliament is not just about pumping out bills. I think a lot of politicians, unfortunately, think that is the, literally their job. Min ministers think, the ministers think it's their jobs to get through Parliament the bills that have been presented to them by their departments. Yeah, and That's yeah, how these can, things usually run. Look, and it's nice to, to measure against itself against something, but still. <laughs> speaking speaking of legislative reform, Scott. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, there is the prospect of some welcome legislative reform, it seems. Um, the uh, Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act uh, provides that uh, for a, a review every 10 years, and in this case, the government commissioned Graeme Samuel, the, uh, the former competition czar, um, and former investment banker, of all things, uh, to conduct that review. And he has presented his interim report. And we uh, at the IPA are vitally interested in that. I think uh, most listeners will be aware of our project to cut red tape, to unleash, unleash prosperity, to unleash jobs, uh, which we've been running for many years now. And certainly there is lots of job-killing regulation that arises from the environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act and the way it's administered and the lawfare that goes with it. And, uh, and Graeme Samuel has also said it uh, doesn't necessarily deliver great environmental outcomes. But uh, Evan, you've been looking at that uh, when it came out yesterday and also um, organised the IPA's response. Absolutely. Um, there are good things that have come out of you. Firstly, an acknowledgement from the government on their part in um, the environmental Environment Minister Susan Lee, that uh, green lawfare uh, is hurting investment. Uh, we've estimated that it's put $65 billion of investment at risk through green activists being able to tie up projects. Uh, we estimate a cumulative total of uh, 10,100 days in court since the beginning of the EBC Act, which is just an insane amount of time. Uh, green activists from the inner city challenging projects that they have no material relation to. So now, um, I think they will end up dealing with that Section 487 of the FBC Act um, through uh, what I think is a very good proposal is to accredit states to handle environmental uh, 
uh, regulation and uh, environmental uh, approvals. Uh, because at the moment, uh, if you want to start a development in Australia, you have to not only go through local and state government approvals, you have to go through federal government approvals as well. And as we know, there is so much overlap between those. Um, at a federal level, uh, we've estimated there's been a 445% increase in an amount of regulations in the EPC Act since the year 2000. Um, there are some other good things. The government, uh, the, the review rejected the need for a, a climate trigger, climate trigger, which is a hobby horse of uh, green uh, conservation and activist groups. Uh, they think there needs to be some sort of greenhouse gas trigger in the EPBC Act governed by an independent authority full of unelected bureaucrats that could instantly stop any development from going through. So I think that is a uh, excellent one. They were also wanting a, a federal takeover of all environmental laws. Uh, the government's rejected that uh, and, and, of course, said that they'll uh, look to accredit states uh, to handle that. Um, uh, there is calls for what they're calling um, uh, you know, nationally in enforceable environmental standards and uh, I think that could be very concerning and, and, a, and a cop on the beat. Uh, in terms of um, in enforcing like a federal law. like a federal EPA, which is like a holy grail of the green movement. Too. Yeah, the government has rejected the the police in well, the enviro police enforcement part, which I think is a really good thing. They're also talking about um, a free market approach to uh, habitat protection, um, which I think could be really interesting. Um, uh, yeah, so they're looking at a few things. Graham Samuel, this is an interim report. Graham Samuel actually said he's going to get you know all these business groups and environmental groups together in one room and has invited them all no, to no, try to reach a consensus. Not in one room. Uh, <laughs> one, one, one Zoom is call. Waiting for our invitation, and very interesting that we haven't got one yet. Considering I believe that the IPA's research in this area was actually the impetus for starting the, you know this whole uh, process in the first place. So. Um, and, you know, a lot of the government's response uh, echoes what we've been saying for many, many years. So the, uh, just to, what is your read of the politics of this at the moment? Because Section 487, which is the um, EPBC um, provision that allows environmental or gives environmental groups standing to challenge um, uh, development applications, even though they don't have a direct interest um, uh, in, in those applications themselves or in those projects themselves uh, has been a long-standing, uh, getting rid of that has been a long-standing agenda item of the coalition government. Um, and for, but for just as long as the coalition government has been in power, it's been a bit of a quagmire that they, the government has privately believed that there's just no way they could get it through really any, any iteration of the Senate that they've been faced with. Um, and I know having spoken to some senior policy makers in recent years, they just don't know, they, they don't think it's going to get through and they'd sort of put it on the back burner if not gotten rid of it. Do you think this changes that or are we still in the same situation? Is it different because of COVID? What's your I think on? I think since the 2019 election, uh, the political dynamic has changed. Uh, Labor are now grappling with these issues of, of resources, jobs. Uh, You've had a Labor senator for Victoria, Senator Rafficoni, come out on the weekend and recommend that they should stop environmental groups from being able to litigiously challenge uh, projects up in court. Uh, he says there is dignity in all work, and that includes blue-collar uh, jobs uh, in resources and agriculture and forestry as well. Um, so Labor are dealing with this issue as well. You even had Bill Shorten, of all people, uh, criticised the government the other day about a go slow on environmental approvals. Uh, I'm loving this new, you know, right of set of Bill Shorten, but his uh, Labor opposition were, of course, the ones that blocked uh, this reform in the Senate, uh, I think, about four or five years ago. So there is some change on Labor's part, you know, not only on the emissions side, but on environmental approvals as well. And I think that will create the space uh, for the coalition to have another go at this reform. Yeah, well, what if the coalition wants to? I think they do. Uh, the, from the, the the noises that they've been making on uh, on lawfare, lawfare on uh, you know, opening Australia up for investment uh, in a post-COVID economy, uh, I think 
I think they will have another go at this uh, yeah. in the future. What, what they need to do is um, control the narrative um, because the way this will be painted, uh, in terms of this idea of devolution to the states that you talked about, this, this has been the missing piece in the puzzle uh, from day one. Basically, 50 years ago, the Commonwealth had very little environmental regulation. Um, and then uh, progressively over time it invaded the arena that had previously been the domain of the states, um, uh, aided by the High Court through Tasmanian Dam decisions and so on. And what that led to was a tremendous amount of duplication, essentially everything being assessed twice, sometimes in conflicting measures. There's been various ad hoc ways to try and do that. Uh, this Act itself was passed by uh, a coalition government under Robert Hill trying to uh, reserve that a little bit by saying, look, there's only a certain number of matters that the Commonwealth is interested in um, and we just want to make sure any environmental assessment addresses those matters. But it hasn't worked out in principle. The, um, the, the Greens have always attacked and Labor has walked away from sort of bilateral agreements between uh, federal and state governments. Um, I've been involved in, a, uh, say, the BassLink project in a previous life. It, it required a, an agreement between the Victorian, Tasmanian and Commonwealth governments to run one process uh, because otherwise it just uh, it couldn't have been done. So, um, But how it's going to be misrepresented is the idea here is the federal government sets the standards, it sets the guidelines and it sets the objectives um, and then, but the states can manage it. They can manage an environmental assessment process. So this is actually about finally dealing with something that is endemic to our uh, country, which is the destruction of, of our federal system. Uh, this is about the state invading an area that had previously been in the preserve of the, uh, the sorry, the Commonwealth invo invading the state's um, prerogatives and we have to get this right otherwise we will never be able to present a, um, a system which achieves environmental objectives while actually encouraging investment and and creating jobs and it's it's such a job killer because the other point that Samuel makes is everything's project by project so the environmental protection can be the greatest schmozzle in the world, but nothing happens. There's no assessment of it. There's no, there's no work done until some poor bastard comes along and actually tries to start a project. And, and I've been through this. It's like, oh, there's growling grass frogs. Well, we better go and commission a study of the growling grass frog because that's never been done before. And, oh, that might, that might take two years while we go and um, uh, put, put a grid over some over the area and count the frogs but we've got to count them in summer and we've got to count them in winter and we've got to go through a whole breeding cycle and the next thing you've lost a year because no one's really worried about the growling grass frog in that area until someone came along and said they want to build a power station so um, we have to get away from this project by project and ad hoc uh, thing and particularly with this conflict between levels of government so if some good can come out of this, Australia will be better off and I think the environment will be better off as well. And it's an interesting time to... Sorry, go on, Evan. Oh, I, I was just going to say quickly, I think it in devolving the accreditation, in accrediting the states to handle the environmental approval process, um, it really unleashes competitive federalism and gives the states a stake in their economic recovery. Uh, if WA wants more projects and more jobs than Queensland, it can streamline its processes to be uh, quicker in approving uh, uh, projects than Queensland. Um, and you could have a system where all the states are competing with each other rather than tying it up with Canberra and enabling uh, litigious green groups to hold them all up. And just, sorry, Chris, sorry, Chris quickly, and what, what the Greens will paint it as is competing to lower environmental standards, but you, you got it exactly right. It's not competing on the standards, it's competing on the process by which you get projects assessed rationally, quickly, decisions made. That's, that's exactly the right place for competitive federalism. These sorts of reports really bug me because they always, they, they follow quite a um, traditional model. And this seems like a reasonably good one because it's, it's quite clear about the failures of the existing act um, and that it doesn't achieve its goals and it is very costly. But it also just throws in a bunch of very 21st century policy recommendations. We need an independent regulator. We need to do this. We need to take it out of the hands of pol elected politicians because they might have um, political impetuses on it and all that sort of thing. It is nonetheless a really interesting time to do this sorts of reform because 
as Scott and listeners will know, I have been banging on about our need right now to myopically focus on nothing but economic growth. And um, if the government can push through changes, and I would recommend that the government push through changes recommended off the basis of the interim report, not just wait till the final report, then we could potentially be starting to do that rollback of regulations, rollback of the red tape burden that we're going to need to get the economic growth out of the crisis. This is the sort of stuff, to, to, to wrap it up, this is the sort of stuff which is why you would want a parliament sitting. Yes. Um, <laughs> but it is absolutely fundamental that the government be searching for and aggressively embracing the sorts of pro-economic reform measures that this might represent. Now, we have come to that part of the show where we discuss our books and culture uh, picks uh, and what we've been reading, watching and listening to. And uh, Chris, please take it away with Mr. Jones. Absolutely. So uh, actually, just last night, I finished watching Mr. Jones, which is a film about a Welsh uh, a journalist who also spoke Russian, um, Gareth Jones, who visited the Soviet Union in the 1930s, managed to get his way down to the Ukraine and provided some of, not the first, but some of the first, first-hand um, reporting of the the starvation of the of ukraine by um stalin um this is as a film it's not a bad film it's got some um weaknesses as a piece of of, of, of movie mastery but it is an amazing and very rarely told story and in parts very affecting about the horror of um communism the, the horror that communism in the soviet union wrought onto um, the people who didn't live in Moscow, we'll put it that way, because the argument of the film um, is that Stalin was systematically starving Ukraine in order to fund industrial expansion in um, greater Russia around where all the, um, uh, all the politically connected people lived and around where the Western journalists live as well. The film is correctly and powerfully critical of Walter Durante, the New York Times um, uh, foreign correspondent in the 1930s, who was a aggressive supporter of Stalin. In fact, I believe he may have coined the term um, to make an omelet, you have to break some eggs. If he didn't coin it, he regularly used it both in print and, and he's um, quoted during the movie as using that. Um, I'll make the obvious point, there are not a lot of movies, certainly there are not a lot of um, English language movies on the horrors of Soviet communism. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not gonna be too political about that, but it is really remarkable how rare they are and how horrifying the um, the experience was for people in Ukraine. Very confronting in some parts, um, very uh, powerful in others. Um, it has a, a weird cameo from um, George Orwell, Eric Blair, um, or a character play, uh, an actor playing George Orwell, obviously. Um, uh, but highly, highly recommended for a um, the sort of thing you don't normally see out of sort of a major Western picture. I'm actually glad to hear that it didn't just cover. Uh, him getting the story, but that um, the systematic attempt of uh, Western intellectuals to downplay things that were going on in the Soviet Union is is the complete dis disgrace of the whole thing. Yeah, and I, I don't know enough about Walter Durante to to endorse this, but the story that they're telling is that Walter Durante and a group of international correspondents in Moscow were basically just having one long run party while simultaneously being supported by the Soviet government so that they would just, you know, live, live a great life in Moscow apartments um, on the Soviet dime, or at least with Soviet support, while pushing out propaganda back home. It really, really horrifying. Um, there's a lot true about that. The New York Times has correctly written about um, how disgraceful Durante's journalism was 
during that period. Durante won a Pulitzer for that. I don't believe that the Pulitzer has been withdrawn for his journalism. Um, but anyway, so a, a, a moment in history and a, um, uh, and, and a period, uh, an, a, an episode that is not as widely known as it should be and has more contemporary resonances than are comfortable. And where did you find that movie, Chris? Um, do, do you remember I which, remember. which I, of the 400 I, streaming services it was on? What a great question. I think it was an Apple movie, but you know, I've got like half a dozen of them now. So yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's getting harder and harder to track. <laughs> it, it is. It e- is. Evan's going to talk about McMillions, and I've got no idea. Is that on Binge, Evan? It says yet another streaming service has just yeah, started. Yeah, uh, Binge, uh, which is a uh, Foxtel spinoff, and it's on Foxtel as well. Ah. Um, so it's a HBO documentary uh, about, I think they call it something like the, um, you know, the biggest crime you never heard of. Um, so in the States from 1989 to 2001, there were almost no genuine winners of the McDonald's Monopoly game. Uh, it was a $24 million fraud uh, that corrupted the McDonald's Monopoly game. Um, uh, so it goes through six episodes, uh, it goes through inside the FBI investigation as to how this happened. Uh, you don't actually find out how they did it until the last episode. But uh, at the start, they were actually, when the FBI started looking into this, they were actually quite concerned that it was an inside job and that McDonald's were in on it as well. And somebody was, uh, you know, cashing all the money. And, and as soon as they went to McDonald's, so, you know, it would so all the, be over. The, the, hamb- um, that the Hamburglar was going to be caught red-handed. Exactly, exactly. Um, so it goes through in-depth interviews with all the players. Uh, the, there's mafia involvement. Uh, there's drugs, there's crime rings, uh, all connected to the McDonald's Monopoly game, uh, which is really, really interesting. And the funniest part is um, uh, in order to find who was doing this, they had to work, end up working with McDonald's and run the McDonald's Monopoly game for another, for another, another year, another year in order to find out and catch uh, the person that was uh, defrauding mcdonald's of million dollar winners so really really interested it's got everything you'll ever want it's got um you know drugs uh mafia uh crime and mcdonald's (laughs) (laughs) i just find that bizarre i love the idea that there's all these mafia guys sitting around in a in a room and um uh you know it's like what should we do next should we should we rob a bank should we you know go and lean on a few guys and extort some cash no, 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 no we, should, was, we should go after McDonald's Monopoly game. Once it was found out, it was actually, um, it ended up being pretty big news in the US uh, until 9-11 happened. And then like all the FBI resources got taken away. So it didn't actually end up being uh, put to the courts for a while after that. So it's, it goes into that as well. It's really interesting. Rightio. Uh, I have something a bit a bit lighter and a bit happier. Um Attentive listeners will know of my fondness for uh, for Star Trek. I talked about the uh, Star Trek Picard series, in which uh, the 79-year-old Patrick Stewart made a uh, comeback as uh, the the captain of uh, former captain of the Starship Enterprise. Uh, a good show to get around. But uh, he, of course, is a, um, a classically trained actor from England. Um, and when the lockdown started, just for something to do, he, he read out uh, one of Shakespeare's sonnets and shared it on social media, and it was, uh, it was so warmly received that he's then embarked on a project to read a sonnet a day, uh, which he's been sharing on uh, various social media platforms. Uh, I'm not someone who was familiar with Shakespeare's sonnets, I'm not a, um, or even... Shakespeare's uh, plays necessarily, um, but they're not very long, and uh, it's only they're only fourteen lines each. So this is not a great commitment to to watch a minute or two of of something on social media. Um, I think in a in a it's a very modern sort of way of uh, doing some kind of cultural enterprise, and um, he's got he certainly got the Shakespearean cadences down. And uh, the other thing I noticed. Uh, so I'll share a link uh, where all these are being collected on on YouTube. Uh, all of, so Shakespeare wrote, I think, 120 something sonnets, 
and um, uh, or at least there's 120 something which are in the uh, the bound together. Um, I've then got hold of the exact same Folger edition of Shakespeare's sonnets uh, that uh, Patrick Stewart is using. I was about to call him Jean-Luc Picard. Uh, that Patrick Stewart is using, and uh, it's a, it's the only way I could do it because it's it, you know it's got the the guidance to the to the language and the footnotes that abs, uh, for the obscure words and so on. So for anyone who's a little bit literary or missed, missed the sonnets in high school or university and you're looking for something um, a little bit different because uh, you're sick of um, yelling at the camera every time, uh, yelling at the TV every time Daniel Andrews appears on it, um, I can recommend something like this. And I did actually, the um, sonnet 55 uh, I thought was good because um, this goes to a topic that uh, we've talked about on the show. He talks about... Um, uh, when wasteful wall shall statues overturn was a line that Shakespeare wrote a long time ago. And as we're seeing statues toppled all over the world, I thought, uh, thought there's nothing new under the sun. Um, so I will share the link to the uh, Patrick Stewart readings uh, and guest readings by Serene uh, McKellen today on the occasion of uh, Patrick Stewart's 80th birthday. And I'll also share the link to the Folger edition. So that's my culture pick for the week uh, <laughs> thank you chris uh but that <laughs> has brought us to the end of looking forward which uh as i said at the start is a production of the institute of public affairs if you'd like to join or donate go to ipa.org.au and i'd also recommend you go to ipa.org.au uh, i think it's a forward slash research areas forward slash red tape and read all about the problems with the EPBC Act and red tape in this country generally and what we can actually do about it, some of which Evan quoted. Um, a big thank you today to my co-host, Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Our Director of Communications, Evan Mulholland. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Chris. And to Mitch and Steve in the studio. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.